Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of EOD Gear Improvised. I'm your host, Steve Cassidy. Today, we're going to talk about what's going on in China. I think this is going to provide a lot of in-depth in insight into what we're doing. Today, we have Dr. Far Kim Bang. He's currently in Malaysia uh, and is a uh, fantastic resource, which will provide some insight into what's really going on. This is EOD Gear Improvised. EOD Gear Improvised. Uh, can we get the blow stuff up yet? Stand by. Everyone in EOD has a laser calibrated eyeball. And plenty of attitude to go with it. Um, seriously, can, can we blow stuff up now? Fire in the hole. EOD-gear.com. Initial success or total failure. EOD. Gear. Improvised. With your host, former Navy EOD tech and owner of EOD Gear, Steve Cassidy. All right. Hey, let's dive straight into this. Uh, very honored to have Dr. Far Kim Bang. Uh, is the founder and CEO of Strategic Pan Indo-Pacific and Echo Strategies Insight. Is uh, Well, you've attended more, more universities than uh, most people play football at. So uh, <laughs> I just wanted to bring you in. Could you just briefly cover, well, I don't know if it's possible to even do it briefly, but just give us a little bit of your uh, academic track just so everybody here can really understand. Yeah, well, I first enrolled in a four-year program in Malaysia to get my bachelor's degree. Uh, and I'm an associate professor in my alma mater right now. And soon after my bachelor's degree, way back in 1994, I went to University of Notre Dame and subsequently uh, University of Cambridge, University of Tokyo and Tufts University and Harvard University all for all my advanced uh, education uh, that implies my MA and PhD. And eventually my PhD was uh, granted by Meiji University in Japan. So I hope that explains it all. I, I think that's, that's very in-depth. I mean, to go from Notre Dame and Cambridge, I mean, just, I mean, those two alone are, are very impressive. Uh, so, mm -hmm. well, thank hey, you. let's, uh, and, and thank you for being on the show. And I know we're, we're 14 hours apart, so I appreciate your flexibility <laughs> in, in your time. Um, mm -hmm. so really I just want to kind of jump in. I know prior sure. to the balloon episode, uh, mm -hmm. or fiasco, however you want to describe mm -hmm. that here, we had some, you know, TikTok was a, was a, right. you know, becoming a concern, I guess. Uh, just for security mm -hmm. and privacy. Yep. And so now we mm -hmm. have this balloon that comes across the country and mm -hmm. is eventually shot down. And I do want to, I do want to give a shout out to my fellow Navy EOD techs who recovered the, uh, the debris off the coast of South mm -hmm. Carolina. So uh, mm -hmm. I was really proud to see the the men and women mm -hmm. of the United States Navy OD uh, get called out mm -hmm. at immediate notice to do that. Mm -hmm. So what's, What's going on? A lot of people here are angry about it. Of course, I think now at this point we've had three shot down at this point now. I think there was two. There was the one on the East Coast, one over Alaska, and maybe one over Canada that have been shot down. So we're really just yeah, kind of want to. that's right. Yeah, so we just really want to find out. I mean, signal intelligence, uh, 
you know, why, why are we using balloons? We have satellites. You know, there's, there's all these kind of questions that are like, okay, what's the big deal with balloons? Why, why is this becoming a problem? So mm. where, well, where, what are you seeing? To, yeah, prior to my explanation of what you just asked, allow me to explain that you have people actually tweeting that one of the balloons that was shut down was actually owned by the government of the United States itself. So that's, that's the interpretation of the, the feedback that I've been getting from friends uh, in China and across the Asia-Pacific region. So in terms of rallying the audience, which is what any government would like to do, to favor the public or foreign policy positions of the United States government is concerned, I don't think it's getting or gaining traction as much as the Biden administration may assume because there is always that alternative interpretation and it's happening as we speak that the United States or even Canada have become so... uh, afraid or averse to anything that is floating 40,000 feet up in the air that they might have overreacted on every single unidentified aerial objects. So that kind of churning process is taking place, which is why for an analyst such as myself, who has to separate the wheat from the chaff, it's a very, very difficult job. And I would assume that it is a very difficult job for people in the administrations and uh, all across the bureaucracy of United States or even Canada. But the public having been all riled up wants certain uh, policy responses or certain optics which they can understand. And the reason why they want to understand it is precisely because everyone is puzzled why balloons are the preferred object of surveillance rather than satellites and whatnot. And I'm not envious of the the officials and whatnot that are serving in the highest food chain of the Canadian or American government because they have to come up with certain narrative that can help the people to understand what is going on. Okay. Well, I Does know, that answer your question? Yeah, I think mm-hmm. so. I think, you know, I think there's a narrative that's put out and yeah. it's, it's to rally the, the community, so to speak, around a central mm-hmm. point. Of course, you know, I'm, I'm reading that saying, you know, I'm hearing that they're trying to make it into a joke in China. But I, but I also think a lot of people aren't <laughs> buying that either. So I think we have to go back to uh, the 1967 mm-hmm. Outer Space Treaty, uh, which I think is yep. 100 anything over 100 kilometers or 62 miles above the surface of the yep. Earth is where space actually starts. So there's a treaty that says no one owns, owns space. So right. anything below that, though, is sovereignty mm-hmm. to that country. So... You know, mm-hmm. the violation of sovereignty with the balloon is understandable, mm-hmm. but it does not apply to satellites because 
it's outside that, mm-hmm. that spectrum. The uh, a lot of people are like, why would you use balloons? Because I was thinking about this as well. Um, they mm-hmm. with the technology now, balloons are able to maneuver. Um, it's kind of like round parachutes. We were always told, oh, you can fly those. Well, yeah, maybe, kind of. Um, right. Square parachutes are definitely better. But mm-hmm. with uh, balloon technology now, they can loiter longer, and they are definitely cheaper to deploy than uh, satellites. And so keeping a satellite mm-hmm. on position as opposed to driving a balloon and getting closer to your target, and again, that comes in, what's the use of the technology? Is it civilian use? Is it military mm-hmm. use? Is it dual use? And so mm-hmm. I think that's... Well, right. Go ahead, sir. For for what it's worth, for what it's worth, there is an element of he said and she said, which is very, uh, very natural in any kind of uh, cantankerous argument. Because when a when a country makes a position very very clear, then the the other side is bound to make its message heard as well but True. i think for the for the for the sake of precise recollection of how the event actually occurred first of all the balloons have been there even prior to the biden administrations based on what i can understand and read from the public press in other words they have been around even during uh, the time of Trump administration, which the Pentagon admitted. True. And second, so, yeah. And secondly, the Chinese actually offered an immediate apology when the balloon was spotted. Uh, and I'm referring to the first or the second balloon that hovered over Montana uh, and eventually going sideways and all the way to the Atlantic Sea. So it's what I'm trying to get at is that it's actually very rare for any government to issue an immediate apology uh, as a form of nikalpa. In other words, to apologize for their action. Now, does that constitute a form of action on the part of the Chinese to apologize or to try to uh, reduce what could potentially become a very very serious incident? I think the intention was there and there's also another strand of opinion that is very active all across Asia Pacific region, if not China too, that the number one in China was not completely aware of this operation and that could potentially be something worthy of being looked at. Now, if that is the case, in other words, uh, the number one in China was not completely informed that there's this kind of, you, whether you can call it surveillance or dual-use applications, uh, balloon being used uh, up in the air or the airspace of the United States, then what you actually have in hand is a, is a situation where uh, the right hand simply does not know what the left hand is doing, uh, either on both sides of the government, uh, which is why this has been taken up or consumed by the public press or the 
audience in the country with such intensity and potentially even dark humor because the relationship is sufficiently when I say with the relationship, I'm referring to the Sino-American relationship, is sufficiently sophisticated because it involves both countries being able to have a technological rivalry and both countries being able to produce very high-end technological products, yet they are now entrapped in some kind of a conflict over something that has roots that go all the way back to the 19th century, which is a balloon. So that's the irony of it all. Yeah. The French started it all. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So the, was it the the French first used it in the French Austrian war in the late 1800s, Mm -hmm. I believe. Mm -hmm. And of course you significantly in world war one and world war two. Right. Well, my personal belief. Yeah. No, if I I may, my personal, yeah, my personal belief is that it's not it's not to the benefit of anyone to try to escalate this issue any further, even though the likelihood of that happening is actually very high, because we have seen uh, both Canada and the United States shooting down three unidentified un- objects over the last one week, and the the intensity of that incident can only gain in ascendancy or escalate further. So both sides have to try to, or all sides have to try to set up some kind of a hotline in order to explain what's really going on. And it's not very helpful when the Secretary of State of the United States decided to cancel his trip to China. Had he been there, I'm sure that he would have absorbed all the pressure on the downing of the balloon, but then he would also be in a position to put the questions back to the Chinese government. What is actually going on? Yeah. I think anytime you, you restrict diplomacy, I think, I think you run a risk, but I mean, or, you know, but then they have the optics. It's, it's like, okay, we have the diplomacy, with China, who, who we need, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. we, we all work with people at times that we don't always agree with. Mm-hmm. And that's the same, mm-hmm. same way for nations. Um, right. But I think anytime you restrict policy, but I think a lot of it's optics because the politicians here, mm-hmm. their job is to get reelected. And mm-hmm. I think that's playing into the, a little bit of that is domestic politics instead of geopolitics and diplomacy. And right. I think it gives it gives the media, you know, more fuel to uh, put out more mm. information and you know gather more ad revenue. I guess. Yeah. Well, the what is interesting is that uh, we normally use certain barometers to understand whether the Sino-American relationship is actually affecting the market sentiments and whatnot. And that would be the wall, the stock indexes and, the, and whatever indicators that you can get out of Wall Street and other stock exchanges. The feedback that I get from friends in 
credit rating agency is that this incident has not significantly affected the stock indexes of Wall Street or even in other parts of the world. And I can definitely say that it doesn't have any correlation or causation to the rise or the uh, the downward trend of the stock indexes of the markets in Asia Pacific. And that includes Japan, South Korea, which are allies of the United States. True. If, yeah, if anything else, they would be one of the first two countries to be affected by the deterioration of the Sino-American relationship. But the stock market does not seem to be perturbed or, uh, well, to be... Yeah, I don't think there's any uh, negative correlation to the story. Right. Exactly. So... So that leads me to the issue whether we are all stuck in some kind of a media echo chamber yeah, or are we actually reflecting on an issue that has a real-time impact on the lives and the financial bottom line of people all across the world. Yeah, I think there's, I think it's difficult to draw, you know, with the use of apps on our phones. I think trying to mm-hmm. define that line between privacy and security is speaking mm-hmm. to national security. Right. So how you're collecting data mm-hmm. uh, and whether it's through the use of balloon or satellites or, or an app like TikTok, you know, I think a lot of that is mm-hmm. a lot of people here will give up privacy, even though they say they don't right. for convenience. Mm-hmm. So the United States mm-hmm. is very convenience driven. And, mm-hmm. and there, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's it's all about making your life better and easier. But I think it, in that exchange right. is for your information. So I think it's trying to drive, drive a line between what's the difference mm-hmm. between privacy and security when it when it relates to national security. So if they can see a you know track movements of people or demographics or what's happening, especially if it comes to military personnel who would have these apps on their phones to be able to track right. But I mean, I think, yeah. I think that's going to be, how do we define that going forward? Go, oh, it's a security issue or it's a privacy issue. And, and they do overlap, but I think it's completely different. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of like with the balloon. I think it's easy to point at that and go, it's something visual that you can see. But right. what, is it a security issue or is it a privacy issue? You know, and, that, and that's, a, you know, of course we have the FBI now has the recovered wreckage from the the first balloon that was shot down. Mm. So, you mm. know, again, they're going to do a forensics piece. They're going to look at where the parts were made, how it was made, what the, you know, what, what kind of antennas were used for reception. And I, you know, right. And of course, a lot of things, I mean, <clears throat> zip ties and duct tape, you know, which is the core piece of explosive ordnance disposal is clearly dual use. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. We use it mm-hmm. in the military. We can use it as a civilian. So, Mm-hmm. Well, on relationships, just going forward, I know there's a lot going on. I think we saw something where the United States is really ramping up relationships with India on the technology side. And, you well, know, of course, Taiwan. The United States is, Go ahead, sir. Yeah, just, yeah, just latching on to what you said earlier, United States is definitely trying to reinforce its relationship with India. But then the irony of it all is that the United States has not sent 
its ambassador to India over the last uh, 20 months or 24 months. In other words, Biden administration hasn't filled up that post. So that gives people a lot of thought and also doubt. Is the United States actually trying to cultivate India as a counterbalance to China, North Korea, and Russia, so on and so forth? Or is something wrong in the bureaucracy of the United States that does not allow an American ambassador to be posted to India over the last two years? Didn't know that. Yeah, but unfortunately, it's the reality, though. (laughs) Nice. Which is why one has to be very careful about the information that one is trying to consume because you can hear a lot of noises and uh, very boisterous uh, cries from the media and whatnot, and even the pundits and the commentators. But then, on the other hand, you have a U.S. government that hasn't sent an ambassador to fill up one of the most important positions in its diplomatic services. Yeah, that may be something uh, we'll have to discuss on another episode, find out what's Mm -hmm. going on there. Uh, Mm -hmm. So bringing India into the picture, I know India and China are not, do not have the best relationship. Um, but yet again, mm-hmm. they form BRICS as a way to, I guess, do business outside of market currency using the U.S. dollar. Right. So what do you see happening? with? Um, I mean, because you have some antagonistic relationships between mm-hmm. India and China or China and Japan. Now, Japan's not part of BRICS. But then you have time. Well, what is interesting? Yeah, what is interesting about the concept of BRIC is that uh, it was actually conceptualized by one of the analysts in Goldman Sachs, but then he was not the person who actually came up with that uh, abbreviation. It was his research assistant. So you have that person coming up with the idea that Brazil, Russia, Indonesia, India. China and South Africa, these are the countries that uh, Goldman Sachs should be seriously looking at if they want to deepen their financial pockets and whatnot. But somehow or rather, the concept gained traction even among the diplomatic circles itself. And you have the leaders uh, of all these countries trying to meet up from time to time, and they call it the BRICS summit. They also have a group of Sherpa, uh, in other words, diplomatic shepherds who can guide the whole process, resulting eventually to a, in, in a summitry that allows all the presidents to have a common say, a common statement uh, at the end of the whole process. So you have that going on. But then at the same time, the very person who actually came up with the idea of BRICS has also disowned it. In other words, he believes that the global economy is not necessarily heading in the direction of where all these countries known as BRICS will definitely be the pillar of new global growth. You say it will be or will not be? Uh, It will not be. According to that 
original person who conceptualized it together with the help of his research assistants at Goldman Sachs. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's a community. It's, you know, some people use Venmo to make payments. Uh, other people use right. cash. Other people use Apple Pay, whatever that is. So, right. I, you know, and I think that geographically that makes sense to have that kind of mm-hmm. relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what else, what else is going on? I mean, you, you have such great insight on, you know, what, what do we in the United States need to, what are we looking at going forward over the next five or 10 years? Well, going to the next five to 10 years, uh, will be, a, a very difficult prediction. But what I can share with you is that we are now in the midst of a run-up to a series of very, very important elections next year, which is 2024. So in 2024, you have a presidential election, not just in the United States, but also in Russia. Now, whether that happens or not depends on the outcome on the ground in Ukraine. Because for what it's worth, President Putin might actually suspend the presidential election next year if things do not go well for him and his national security team. Aside from that, you also have a general election in India, which is one of the biggest countries in the world, uh, as you just mentioned. Right. You also have a presidential election in 2024 in Indonesia, which I refer to as a pan and Indo-Pacific power because it has a wingspan, a geographical wingspan that is equal to that of the south of, to the north of France all the way to the south of Turkey, which right. is huge. Yeah, that is huge. Yeah. Yeah. And given the fact that you have served in New Guinea before, I would assume that you understand the, uh, the geographical depth that I'm referring to. Absolutely. Not just on the basis of the landmass, but the maritime wingspan. You also have an election coming up in 2024 that will slightly, if not more, unsettle the decision makers in mainland China, which is the election, presidential election in Taiwan. You have another general election coming up all across the European Union. It's not referred to as general election, but rather as the parliamentary election of the European Union that is consists of 26 member states. You have a general election in South Africa that is considered by Professor Paul Kennedy as one of the pivotal power. And you also have an, a presidential election coming up in Algeria that is also defined by Professor Paul Kennedy at Yale University as a pivotal power. Uh, What does he mean by a pivotal power? When anything happens to a pivotal power, all other countries that are geographically contiguous or connected to that country will all be disrupted. So you have general elections coming up all across the world, and these are major powers in 2024. Now, we all know for a fact that when you have election in 2024, then the run-up to the general elections begin now. All that, all that sharp elbowing and whatnot, they really begins now. Whether it's Trump, 
trying to run for office again, or if uh, Governor DeSantis, who is the potentially the number one person who can clinch the candidacy from the Republican Party, all of that has started in the United States. Now, if American audiences would like to appreciate the kind of tension or pressures in all the countries that I, I mentioned, that process has actually begun. Oh, Whether absolutely. The United Kingdom, India, Indonesia, South Africa, uh, and all those member states that I mentioned that span across the European Union, they have all begun their all their domestic and electoral maneuvering, which makes it very, very difficult to understand what will happen in the next five to 10 years. Gotcha. The Game of Thrones has already begun. Yes, it put has. It that way. The winter is coming. <laughs> okay. Man, that is that yeah. is right. Well, what's, um, just kind of shifting back to you personally, what are you mm-hmm. currently mm-hmm. working on? Um, you know, that is... Well, personally, I'm quite concerned with a series of issues that can actually affect world peace or even planetary existence in the next 50 years, if not less. So you have a coronavirus that is ongoing that can potentially keep producing subvariants that can be deadly. Uh, you have climate change. You have cross-street relationship between Taiwan and China that can become uh, extremely disruptive. You also have the chasm of income within all countries, as explained by Professor Thomas Piketty and Emmanuel Sass at UC Berkeley, and that is the differentials between those who have received all the best benefits of so-called globalization and those who have been completely left behind. And that's what I refer to as the chasm of the income between the haves and the have-nots, between the 1% and and the 99%. So those are issues that deserve a very serious scrutiny. The United Nations have referred to all the global issues uh, as sustainable development goals, all 17 of them that have to be achieved. So you have elimination of poverty or absolute poverty as the number one priority. So I'm trying to understand what are the issues that nation states actually put the effort to look into but potentially, what are the issues that nation state disengage from? Because it's simply not in their interest to decarbonize their economy completely because that will lead to a tremendous loss of jobs. Okay. Yeah. So, on income disparity, mm-hmm. I, and and it's and it, and it continues to grow, and not just here in the United States, but you know everywhere. That's right. That's right. I think there's, you know, I, I was fortunate to be stationed in Italy for about seven years, and knew mm-hmm. a lot of people there. But generally, if your if your dad 
worked in a potato field, that means you have to work in a potato field. And I think there's, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's difficult to break out in culture. And, you know, if you're, right. if you're stuck there, United States is a little bit different. If you're, if your dad's a farmer, you can still be a doctor. And, right. and, I, and I know those people. And, mm-hmm. you know, but if you're even in Western Europe, there's still that lock on, you know, what did, what did your parents do? So how do you break that? And I mean, you're clearly the expert on culture uh, in, in Asia. Whoa. So, I mean, how does, how do you break that? And uh, Because I asked, because maybe we can learn lessons here by, you know, because it's so extreme there mm-hmm. when you're locked into, this is what you're going to do for your living. Mm. Well, if I am given the benefit of offering any advice to the likes of your audience, which I'm hoping they are tuning in, the United States is actually a country that can be very generous in terms of the academic opportunities that are available. But occasionally, you also see the United States very uh, fastidious in the kind of scholarships that are offered to uh, people from all across the world. So, for instance, it's extremely, if not impossible, to get a scholarship to get into an MBA program, uh, regardless of we, whether we are referring to an Ivy League or a simple MBA program in a second or even at a third tier uh, universities in the United States. The reason is because the higher education sector in the United States are actually in uh, deep, deep creek. They are in serious dire straits. So there's only a small amount of scholarships which they can offer to the rest of the world. Meanwhile, you have China that has thousands of universities and colleges that really do not mind more students coming over to China uh, to study and work in China because they have a growing population after all. So as and when the United States can overcome that uh, that obstacle, that mental obstacle, that giving out of scholarship does not lead to an influx of immigrants into the United States that can remain and work in the United States to the detriment of the people of the United States, then that would probably be the point where the United States actually can regain its uh, seeming superiority again because Professor Samuel Huntington at Harvard University, who has since passed away, argued that immigration is actually one of the strengths of the United States. It's just that the gains are not immediate. And, and that is the reason why you have backlash against people coming to the United States, which I completely understand. But if you, I, I think it's the process on how they get here. Are they right legally right. or illegally? Right. I think it's it's process. Mm. I think I think people mm. here are very. Uh, I think people here are very giving. I think what 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 you have here is hope. And I right. think, right. I think you you have the opportunity here, and I think that gives you a reason to have hope. But I mean, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. as long as people are coming in for the for the right reasons. 
and or, or you know using the process that is correct and legal um and mm-hmm. i understand when people got to escape i mean if it's if it's bad you got to leave and you'll do whatever you have to do to leave and get somewhere right. else so but coming back to right. the education i mean there's mm-hmm. obviously there's so much real estate that a university can afford you know as, right. as far as housing and, and feeding so i mean do you think I mean, mm-hmm. most universities now have an, uh, a web-based program, but do you get the benefit? Mm-hmm. Does the student get the benefit by participating mm-hmm. in web-based because of geographic lo- restrictions? Well, uh, that's that's correct. But then uh, since the eruption of the pandemic, various universities have also, including Harvard, Yale, so on and so forth, have explored and come away realizing the benefits of online education. So it's actually not difficult for American institutions to convert some of the online programs into uh, scholarship programs, what I'm referring to. So for instance, a person can easily get an MA degree from the Extension School of Harvard University but then Harvard University does not provide any kind of scholarships to allow a person to get gotcha. a degree from Harvard. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So if they go, if only some universities can, can liberalize the attitude because the American currency is extremely strong at this stage. And when that happens, then a lot of people, very decent and bright people, they can't afford to pay their way even when the fees are reduced by 80%. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, I see the university, you know, I don't see them lowering their prices. You know, I think, I think they have their trust funds. Right. And I think if they, and so I guess it's, how do you let a bunch of people in, which then may diminish the perception of the, you know, how prestigious the university is. Right. Right. So if it's well, uh it's a function of having access hmm. to that group of people. If you let everybody in, I mean, I like I see their point, but I also understand, you know, education's education. Yeah. Well, when whenever we engage in any kind of dialogue with regards to international relations, we always have a tendency of believing that there's only two tracks at work. And that is government-to-government relationship or the relationship between think tanks that are uh, trusted by the respective governments. But researchers and scholars have found out that there are more than two tracks of diplomacy. So you have, if you have faith-based organizations such as churches and whatnot, visiting each other or locking in relationship between the churches in the United States and Indonesia, for instance, that's potentially another track of diplomacy at work. You also have tourists mm-hmm. uh, who can basically explore the countries of each other freely. Uh, and that would be the fourth track of diplomacy. Uh, you have diplomacy that can involve civil society organizations or what are known as NGOs. And when you have all those organizations working across the borders and with each other, you have five tracks of diplomacy. And you also have university to university 
relationship, which is uh, listed down in United Nations as the UN Sustainable Development Goal 17, which encourages universities and colleges all across the world to have more memorandum of understanding and to have stronger collaboration, regardless of their rankings and whatnot. Now, when you take into the considerations that diplomacy is in so many different forms, then the very com- the very fact that we have a conversation which can be uh, listened by your audiences, that in itself is already a form of diplomacy, a form of peace advocacy at work. Right. Mm. Okay. Well, let's... Uh... Let's figure out. Uh, so here's a question: If if I'm here, sure. if I'm if I'm one of my listeners and say, you know, I was really thinking about getting my MBA, I'm not getting mm-hmm. into Harvard. Where where would mm-hmm. I go in Asia to get a quality MBA? Let's say I want to say MBA mm-hmm. with international. Uh, where where would I go? What what do you think that would cost? Do you do you have any? Yeah. So if an American is keen on understanding uh, Asia-Pacific, one of the best MBA program or executive MBA program, which is even more important than a typical MBA, would be the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, which, for what, it, uh, for what it's worth, has a relationship with the Kellogg School of Marketing in Northwestern North, University. Northwestern, so, right? Yeah, Northwestern. Yeah, in, yeah Northwestern right. University in Evan. Evanston, Illinois. Uh, that's right. So if Americans were looking at uh, an MBA program, especially with a strong specialization on marketing, uh, then Hong Kong would probably be one of the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, which has a link up with Kellogg School in Northwestern University would be one of the options that they want to look at. And uh, and the list just goes on and on because more and more MBA programs are now trying to collaborate and work with different countries, not just uh, within its own geographical locale. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, let's wrap this up. I mean, I know you and I have had some in-depth conversations. You and I could run this show for several hours, uh, if not longer, mm-hmm. but uh Sure. I, and I would love to have you back on uh, sometime in the future. I, I think as as we come into twenty twenty four, I'll be honest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we, what's? Uh, I'll give you the parting shot. What can we do to? Uh, what can we do? Uh, do for you? What are, What are you working on? What can? Uh, how can people find you? Oh wow! If they just Google my name, they'll find that uh, my information is easily available. And if they would like to have any kind of academic or non-academic advice on a variety of issues, I'll be more than happy to answer all of them. Uh, uh, For what it's worth, I was one of the very first to explain to the then Prime Minister of Malaysia way back in June 2019 that we have to be very, very careful about the likelihood of a pandemic. But however, my advice was not taken. And uh, lo and behold, a pandemic actually did occur. So I've got several 
predictions and analysis right, not because I'm some kind of Nostradamus, but I just happen to have the privilege of being in different countries. And one of the reasons why I got a pandemic right was because I was hot, I was in Hong Kong way back in 2002 when the severe acute respiratory syndrome was all over the city. And it was a very visceral shock to see a dynamic city coming to a complete halt and stop. And that's when I realized that pandemic is something that all countries should be very careful with. And we still have it with us and we just have to coexist with the, with the virus uh, for what it's worth. So if anyone wants to understand issues of that nature of something that is more global, feel free to get in touch with me. I'm going to uh, give everybody your website, but I'm going to spell it phonetically sure. so that everybody sure. can get this. Uh, so it's Delta. No yeah. So you go online and you can just type in Delta Romeo Papa Hotel Alpha Romeo Kilo India Mike Bravo Echo November Gulf dot com. Dr. Far Kim Bang dot com. Did we get that correct? That's right. That's right. You got it right. Perfect. <laughs> well, fantastic. Uh, Dr. Kim, thank you so much. It's it's always a great pleasure, and I look for. I know we'll probably be speaking again in the next few days. Uh, sure. Talk about some of the other things that that are going on, but thank you so much. Sure. And, and yeah, I just want to wish everyone well and be safe. All right, thank you, sir. Just uh, hold on the line real quick, and we'll get going. Sure. Everybody, mm-hmm. thank you for listening in, and uh, get a hold of uh, Dr. Kim. Uh, if you have anything going on in the Indo-Pacific region. You've been listening to EOD Gear Improvised. EOD Gear Improvised. Steve Cassidy, a former Navy EOD tech and owner, owner of EOD Gear Initial Success or Total Failure. Two locations, one in Franklin and one in Huntsville. The website is eod-gear.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Twitter. EOD Gear has customers from around the globe. Until next time, this is EOD Gear Improvised. Signing off.